pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. I made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. What's up, guys? Dylan DeChair here coming to you midweek with a uh, second podcast of the week. Although, I guess just all a matter of perspective because, as you will find out, or as you maybe you're just learning, this is part two of a two-part interview podcast with Mr. Brandel Chambly. This was taped about a month ago. This was directly before the Open Championship. So if anything sounds dated, that's why. So if you haven't listened to the first part and you want to hear a little bit more about Brandel's background, his approach, what got him to this point in the golf world, to this position, uh, to the center of the limelight in a pivotal golfing year, I would recommend going back and listening to part one from Monday before you get to this part. But, you know, it's a free country. Your ear time, your audio time is limited. I appreciate you spending it with uh, with me and with us at the Drop Zone, however you, however you see fit. So, uh, what we have coming up today is Brandle on... Current events, I guess. Brandle on Live, Brandle on Phil Mickelson, Brandle on morality, Brandle tackling everything that the professional golf world has been tackling from his perspective. So I don't expect you to agree with all of it, but I think hearing his perspective on it will help you, I guess, understand his point of view better. Um, it's, it is at the very least something he has thought about a lot, so... Uh, you will hear some of me, you will mostly hear Brandel, and I hope you enjoy. So you've talked about how, you know, professional golfers are not your audience. That's not, you're not, you're not catering to the guys that are out there that you're talking about, but you're also not necessarily catering to the, the most vocal minority of, of, uh, social media commenters say, nope. Who are you listening to? Like, are there voices who give you feedback that you really value, or do you really try to to get that feedback just from yourself and how you've measured up to your goals going into the show? Yeah, I I, I listen to you know. It's not that I'm not it's not like I'm not broadcasting for golf for you know, professional golfers because they're only. Yeah, there aren't that many of them. Well, I mean, in the there's world, a lot of other there people be, besides there might be ten thousand of them, yeah. which sounds like a lot, but there's fifty million golfers, so the math doesn't work out that that's a significant number. And then I'm certainly not talking to you know the, the people on social media who think that that they're arbiter of all that's right and wrong with the game of golf, although they are informed, and so I I certainly read their stuff, listen to their stuff, and pay attention to it, um, and I try to you know, read as much as I can what the best players in the world are saying. But I'm, my audience is the, is the core golfer. It's, you know, it's the guys out here that pay $300 to go play golf or $200 or whatever it is they pay to play golf. Uh, that's, that's the audience. It's the core golfer. Uh, you know, it's, it's the people I take golf trips with. And, you know, it's not that I don't listen to criticism. I get plenty of it. Uh, if the criticism I think is, is well-founded uh, and not uh, profane, uh, I certainly consider it. I don't think you should just dismiss criticism. There's a, a grain of truth, I think, in criticism, most criticism. Although it's difficult, you know, on Twitter, you know, if, 
and in social media, you know, there are so many bots in the world, uh, you know, how many bots of the Saudis have, you know, tens of thousands of them. And so when I talk about live, you know, um, you know, I'll get a lot of, uh, a lot of interaction, negative interaction on, on Twitter, but 95% of it is bots. And then the other 4% of it are people who've been bought and, and 1% of it are just people who disagree with me. Uh, and that 1% is usually fairly polite. It's just the bots and the people who've been bought uh, that, uh, that, are, that are trying to drum up because social media algorithms reward discord and it rewards bullying and, and people tend to believe that. When I, you know, when I have people, you know, when, when the merger of the tour and live happened or the proposed merger happened, you know, and you know, I had people call me and like, hey, are you all right? And I'm like, am I all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine, why? They're like, well, I just see all this stuff on social media. I'm like, the, the, the idea that anybody would give any credence to what they read on social media, it is bots, it is, lies or it is people with an agenda um you know the you but know. that doesn't st that doesn't stop most people i guess is my question is my point from caring about all of that stuff but you seem like you have sort of a healthy detachment from you know giving those people too much credibility or or whether they're real people or not yeah look they're they're just generally not but you know it, it used to be that you had to you know you had to earn your way towards a, a place where people would listen to you. Now then anybody can, can talk, but if you're walking down the road and, and you see a group of people coming at you that look like they're up to no good, um, you, 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 you cross the street. You don't, you don't stop and engage with them. So why would you stop and engage with the people on social media? You know, if I, I was walking around the US Open for every day, I would walk around the US Open before we'd go on the air, you know, maybe in the course of a week, I would have had several hundred people say something to me. And not one negative comment. Really? Not one. Yeah. We're talking about several hundred interactions over the course of seven days with people. Because what transpires on social media, one, it's fake for the most part, but two, the, the discord uh, and the bullying it's anathema to face-to-face -face conversation. You know, that's just not how people behave. You don't get to act like that face-to-face. -face. Uh, you, know, you, you don't get to engage in conversation, generally speaking, if you're rude or profane. It's just not how. I'm, I've had, it's not to say that I haven't had people stop me and, and take issue with my stance against Liv. I have, but it didn't happen at the US Open. And it's only happened a handful of times, and I've been doing this long before Live was Live. Been taking issue with the Saudi involvement in golf since the first Saudi international event. So we're sneaking up on five years now. And but the few times that I've had people take issue with me in public, it's been very um, congenial, and I'm 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 happy to debate the topic when it's congenial. There's a conversation I remember having with you 
must have been like March 11th or 12th, 2020. Um, and it was right, I mean, it was right before the pandemic shut the world down and golf down. And it was also right after Rory had, had really spoken up for the first time about, you know, I wasn't, wasn't crazy about where the money was coming from. And I remember you saying, look, there's going to be people that are going to have to make some tough decisions if, if some of this starts looking like it's going to look like, like, you know, Dylan, if someone's going to pay you X millions of dollars per year, how is that going to affect, you know, the choices you make with your hypothetical career? That's the sort of decision that these players and other people in the golf ecosystem are going to make. And it's not so much a question and just as, is that something that sticks out in my mind as a, uh, moment in time that I can crystallize like wow that's when it became real for me yeah was the days around then was it on your radar a long time before then I guess you mentioned that the Saudi involvement was already there um, and does that still seem like a, a turning point in the game definitely yeah uh, you know when the Saudi international event started and I don't think it's coincidental that it started shortly after the murder and dismembering of Jamal Khashoggi. But from that moment to this moment, it's tilted the entire game towards greed. Uh, and I would say perhaps catastrophically towards greed, you know? And I always used to say that, you know, when people would ask me about different scandals that arose in the game, you know, Tiger, whatever they may be, be like, it's not none of my business because, you know, my, my job is to analyze the golf. I'm not talking about the character of people or morals or values. I'm talking about golf. That's what I do. But the whole live Saudi wealth fund investment trying to buy the success of the West has made now sport is about character and it is about morals because it's about people who will sell their souls to turn a blind eye to murder. So it's the corrupting of the sport now based upon greed and based upon turning a blind eye to murder. So, you know, the game has been tilted towards greed. And, and I say catastrophically because it, the greed is, is, is unrealistic, you know, not to get all philosophical on you, but Please. the game is confounded with moral, moral circumstances. I'll, I'll give you this. So I'm going to ask you this question. So yeah. everywhere in the world that golf is played as a sport, okay, where it's legitimately played as a sport, not as a sports washing vehicle, people will travel and play the sport there for free. They'll play in the national amateur championships. They'll, they'll literally play for free. So who won the Saudi Arabia amateur championship in 2022? Right? Didn't happen, right? Because nobody's going to travel to Saudi Arabia and play for MBS and his murderous thugs for free. You have to be paid to turn a blind eye to murder. And they're being paid so much that it's tilting the entire game towards greed. And again, not to get all philosophical on you, but you, you, you can't help but think about the great philosophers and, and the words they had and how it, it has everything to do with what's going on in, in golf. You know, uh, if Aristotle is right, 
in that virtue is something that we can cultivate through practice, is the same not true of greed. So if altruism begets altruism, does not greed beget greed? You know, uh, Rousseau said something very similar when he suggested that the more a country asks of its citizens, the greater their devotion to it. So I would argue, does it not then follow that the less a sport asks of its athletes, does the necessary devotion to it needed to excel at it, not become a risk? And I, I, would, I would say it, it, absolutely, it absolutely does. Uh, and that's unfortunately where we're headed in the game, you know, because what's, these players don't even understand it is that they're being used as instruments. And this is the sad part. This is what's happening in our game is that they're, they're being used as instruments. They're being bought to help hide murders and atrocities. And should, should everything be up for sale in our society? Should everything? Because the market can determine the price of bread. That's what the market does. It's very successful at that. But should the market be able to decide the impunity with which someone could commit human atrocities, crimes against humanity, should the market be able to determine that? It wasn't that long ago that slaves were treated as commodities, robbing them of everything not least the freedom and dignity of living autonomous lives. And in the process, that corrupted all the economies that depended upon and profited from their labor and sale. And it was, you know, over time, the, the morals and values, the global morals and values of the world changed, such that slavery ultimately became seen for what it was, which was the biggest blight in the history of humanity, and it was abolished. But here we are, less than two centuries later, and the morals and the values of the world are changing such that with the, the, the commoditization of seemingly everything in the world makes it not only possible, but acceptable to commit crimes against humanity and pay for the forgiveness. And the vehicle for that forgiveness right now, the main vehicle is sport. And it's disgusting to see what's going on. I applaud Lionel Messi for turning a blind eye to $1.7 billion. Now, mind you, he got lauded for it and he got paid for, you know, he, it was leverage, yeah. but he did say no to them, you know, endeavor the entertainment agency Endeavor gave back $400 million to them. People are saying no to them. Not everybody, not enough. But I thought of all the people in the world that could say no to them, and maybe this is quixotic, but I don't think it is, uh, it was golfers. Because again, golfers answer to nobody. They have the autonomy to tell MBS and his murderous thugs, listen, you want to buy, you want our complicit in your operation, then show me real evidence of reform in your country. Where is that real evidence? Have you abolished the male guardianship law? Do you still put homosexuals in bags and beat them with bats and throw them off buildings for fun? 
Where's the freedom of expression in your country? Where's the, the freedom of religion in your country? You know, where are those things? Show me real evidence of reform. Show me that. And okay. And look, you know, this merger, it, it, you know, for most people it looks like, oh, the tour's up for sale. The tour can be sold now. Um, and because Saudi money is in everything, it's, you know, clean and dirty money's everywhere, mm -hmm. good and yeah. blood money's everywhere. They're taking a page out of Russia and China's book of sort of co-opting one business, makes it harder for another business to say no. And right. Next thing you know, it's everywhere. But, and, and, and someone made this point to me recently and I thought it made a lot of sense. It was like, okay, so here's Uber, which has 10% of the PIF money, 10% yep. of it's in there. Uh, you still use Uber, right? Because it is a, a great benefit and you're mildly disgusted with PIF money being in it. But, but it's not 100% of Uber. So it's like, at, at what point would the investment in golf not make you completely disgusted? In other words, if the entire game were co-opted mm -hmm. by PIF and the Saudi Wealth Fund, if, they, if, they, if this deal goes through, they've got a seat at the board for crying out loud. Right. At what point would you not be entirely disgusted with it. And it's like, well, it's certainly not 100%, it's not 80%, it's not 60%, but if they owned 10% of it, because we can't keep it out, because if you own a publicly traded company, you can't, you can't control who invests in it. If we can't keep it out, can we do everything we can to keep it out until they, you know, if they wanna, if they wanna buy the success of the West and pretend that they're surrogate to the success, at least try to get out of the seventh century. You know, have a, have a collision with modernity, okay? You know, we, we don't chop journalists up if, if they say things we don't like, you know? We don't essentially enslave women from birth till death and make them dependent upon men. We don't do that. Uh, and I felt like golfers were in a, in a unique place to say no to that. Even, you know, what's sad about Phil Mickelson is that he admitted it. He was, you'd have to be a complete moron not to know it, but Phil admitted they were bad people. But then in the next press said, but he could use them for leverage. And that's what made what Phil said and everything that's transpired since then about Phil so, so incomprehensible and sad. All right, gang, let's take a quick break so that I can tell you about our friends at Ocean City, Maryland. Rise with the tide and play like a pro in Ocean City, Maryland. Choose from 17 world-renowned courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicklaus, Arthur Hills, and Gary Player. Swing through sweeping vistas at Eagle's Landing, savor the stunning bay views of Lighthouse Sound, or see for yourself why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest set of fairways. So whether you're sneaking in a quick round or on a family vacation or going all out on a golf getaway, this is the place to be, Ocean City, Maryland, where you don't have to be a legend to play like one. Guys, I mean it. To learn more, visit ococean.com. That's ococean.com to learn more about Ocean City, Maryland. Could be your next golf getaway. All right, back to Brandel. Do you feel like there is any 
I guess Phil's approach to some extent has been like, hey, this is the world we're living in, baby. You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta get on board because it's it's coming whether you like it or not. Where I've sort of thought of, I guess maybe Rory typifies this on the PGA Tour as as uh, wanting to have autonomy and control over something that you know it's it has been different the approach has been different certainly than if every golfer just went to live but but is there an inevitability towards a world that that phil mickelson envisions is there is there any resisting this saudi takeover of of sports and golf specifically well i think if the deal doesn't go through it will open the tour up to clean good money investment and the idea that the Saudi wealth fund, people love to say they have all the money in the world, a $650 billion investment fund. Is, it's laughable to think that that represents all the money in the world. There's something like $140 trillion of money floating around the world that you could call somewhat clean and good to be invested in the tour. And it's opened the, the eyes up of a great many people who have good, clean, honest money, who want to invest it in golf. And, and now then that they're, you know, the model is to have some for-profit uh, operation as, as, as part of the PGA Tour, they could come in and perhaps save golf from, you know, this, this alliance. Uh, you know, the sad thing about, you know, look, Rory, I would say, uh, his opposition to live is based upon conscience and his character uh you know i i will say the the world the world will tell you what to do golf will tell you what to do life will tell you what to do if you listen and i just don't think phil was listening you know he was like how can i make as much money as i can how can i get mine and you know how can i as as profoundly as i can denigrate the pga tour uh, you know, Phil reminds me a lot of Patrick Cantley. They both think they're the smartest people in any room they walk into. They're both smart. I have no doubt that Phil's smart. I have no doubt that Patrick Cantley's smart. Uh, but you're likely not the smartest person that you, in the room. Otherwise, you're likely in the wrong room. Uh, and, and, and they've confused, I think, their talent in one aspect with their talents in other aspects. And they think that they could be the deal makers here and leverage this. And, and that's the part about this. It's the greed has given golfers a reward mentality that is not anchored in reality. You're simply not worth what you think you are. You're not. Yeah. You the world a, has already valued you in a certain way. The market determines what you're worth. Were golfers underpaid before this? Lord, no. <laughs> underpaid? You know, if you go look at the top 100 sports earners of all time, three of the top five were golfers. Of the top five. Yeah. They're golfers. They underpaid. I mean, it's ludicrous to think so. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, I mean, to me, it's like, does bread cost too much? Does milk cost too much? The market determines what you're worth. If the market is telling them based upon your 1.5 rating on TV or your 2.2 rating on TV that you can play for $9 million because corporations are not dumb. They know what they can spend and the value that they get 
the people that run these corporations, they're the smartest people in the room, okay? Not Phil, not Patrick Cantley. Um, they're confusing the corruption of certainly not market principles uh, of what people will pay for sports washing with reality. And they think that that's what they're worth. You know, $25 million purses are unsustainable based upon the market. That was obvious a few years ago, more obvious now. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought if, if Jay would have walked into that meeting with the players and said, look, we've got two options here. We can keep fighting these guys. Actually, three options. Keep fighting these guys and go broke. Or we can take them in as partners and we'll all play for $20, $25 million. But in the process, the reputation of the game gets sullied, your reputation gets sullied. Or we can go tell them no deal. We'll probably have to jettison the Corn Ferry Tour, probably have to jettison the PGA Tour Champions Tour and not play for $25 million, pay for $12 million. We can do that. We can sustain that. That is sustainable. And if we want to do that, I'm your guy. I'm the commissioner. And if you guys want to do that other stuff, I understand it, but I'm not your guy. I resign. To me, that's the stuff that they, they write movies about. You know, that's the stuff they write books about. That's, you know, that's, that is a great leader. Now, I, I realize, again, that's probably romantic or quixotic. Uh, and it's hard to know what you would do unless you were in that room. But the idea, and I, I know technically they didn't sell golf to the Saudis, but that's, that was the, that's the way it looked. And now it looks like golf is up for sale. And it's that they're quick to, to sacrifice their principles for profit. I realize it was a tough dilemma that the tour was in. And they wouldn't have been in the dilemma if, if it wasn't for Phil. You know, when you look at the, the different players that defected, you know, to, to live, they, they were all varied. You know, there was the, you wouldn't look at him twice in Home Depot, Taylor Gooch, to the testosterone twin peaks of Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson, to the flatulently egoed impresario of Greg Norman. But Phil was the only one that could really make a difference. You know, he was the only one. And he was, he was not motivated by altruistic thoughts. He was... He was moved and motivated by greed. And that tilted the game in that direction. And so when I think about the dilemma that the tour was in, it wouldn't have happened if, if, it, hadn't, if it hadn't been for Phil. You know, that's why I think Phil should be removed from the Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't think he has any business being in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's, he's caused irreparable damage to the game. And you know, if the, tour, if the tour's philanthropic aspect dies, the autopsy should read Liv. It should read Phil. You and Phil have had some back and forth just on social media. Has there been any, uh, any contact outside of that? Any, has, is there any material possibility to you guys sitting down and having a chat on TV or is that? 
Look, I told him he was welcome to come up on our set anytime. He, he, you know, he passed it up saying he was busy uh, that week, but you know, he could have come up. He wasn't busy at six o'clock to eight o'clock. He could have popped up there for, you know, made his case. And look, if, if, if he thought he would have come out on the, the winning side of that debate, he, he was like, oh, I don't want you guys to make any more money. First of all, you know, you're going to be on the set for 10 or 15 minutes. I doubt we're going to be able to monetize that in any significant way, Phil. Again, you overvalue your worth. But the flip side of that is if he really thought he could win, then he could have done great benefit to his team and live. And he would have financially benefited from that, not us. If he'd have really thought that he could have won a debate, but he knows his position is morally indefensible. He knows that. Uh, that, you know, after he said he couldn't come up, you know, there were, um, you know, there was a, uh, some guys I know offered to, you know, sort of be intermediary, intermediaries between he and I in a sort of a sit down, not unlike this. Uh, and he passed on that. And I guess he, you know, he said, yeah, you can come and do one on Pierce Morgan, which happens to coincide with the U.S. Women's Open. But it's like, I legitimately am busy that week. Um, and I've listened to Pierce Morgan, you know, and, and I, you know, it's, it's funny. I've listened to Pierce Morgan talk about it. I've listened to Tucker Carlson talk about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think both of those guys are smart. And I think they're both, you know, great on TV. Um, but I, I think they're, you know, they're missing the point of this as well. Um, and that, you know, they're, they make the argument that every business is co-opted uh, and that, you know, the, the, the United States government does business with, with China and Saudi Arabia and that's, you know, that's the foundation of their, po their points. Like, well, the United States has geopolitical issues that golfers do not have. You know, we aligned ourselves with two of the worst human beings that have ever walked on the planet. We aligned ourselves with Stalin to beat Hitler. We aligned ourselves with Mao to sort of keep Russia from doing their thing after World War II. Uh, you could argue that that eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet, it wasn't Russia, sorry, Soviet Union, that led to the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think everybody, everybody understands why we, from a geopolitical standpoint, have aligned ourselves to some extent with Saudi Arabia. But individuals don't have to make those complicated choices. They have the autonomy to say no. And if we're, again, if we're going to allow the commoditization of just everything in the world, then it's a race to the bottom. It's an, it's a, it's an absolute race to hell. Um, and and that's, that's what's on the desk here. That's what's on the table here is, is can you commoditize uh, you know, human atrocity? And Golfers were in a pretty good spot to say, not on my watch. On that day that the merger, for lack of a better term, was announced, there were a bunch of people, Brooks Kepka, your old pal included, who were saying, oh, you know, how's Brandel doing? Welfare check on Chambly, I think yeah. was his tweet. Did you feel any sense of betrayal, regret, um, any, any misgivings about anything you had said on that day looking back? No, I mean, betrayal, yeah. Uh, shock, yeah. Um, you know, 
was incomprehensible to me. For a while, I thought, well, this can't be real. I had, my wife was traveling with a group of girlfriends at the airport. I had gotten out of my car, walked her to the plane, gave her a kiss on the cheek, got back in the car, and I had 50 text messages. And I thought, this can't be real. This is, somebody's pulling my leg here. I'm being punked. Then our main producer called me and he said, you know, can you go on the air? And I was still driving home. I was in t-shirt. I was like, hold on, let me get home and read about this first. Um, so, you know, at first, when I finally got my arms around it, I thought, okay, why would the tour do this? I was like, you know, then it became, all of a sudden, then you start to put yourself in your shoes. It's like, why would they do this? You're like, their financial situation had to be so bleak. And then, of course, there had to be legal vulnerabilities that on both sides that needed to be quelled. And you think, okay, there's no way they make that deal unless, and you don't know that to be the case, but you can pretty much assume it. And that seems to be the reason behind it. So, you know, at first, yeah, betrayal. Uh, you know, I, the Brooks thing and the Phil thing, you know, one, I thought, you know, it was childish on their part. But two, I thought it was a bit ignorant because it wouldn't have been hard to look at if it was, if there is actually a merger with the tour, that means they, they, they all lost their jobs that day. And their new boss, the person they were gonna have to come through was, was Jay Monahan. So they're all walking around like peacocks thinking they got promoted when they got fired. Uh, but it, you know, it goes with who they are. If you look at the people that defected for the most part to live, they were self-absorbed narcissistic types. They want to pound their chest and act like, you know, they're being a force for good, all the while knowing that they're, they're a force for evil, uh, a force for uh, the decay of the game of golf, that they're really just out for their own narcissistic greed. Um, but yeah, you know, I came to over the next three or four days, as we all did, because we all dove in and do what we do and read about it and try to get your arms around that deal and talk to everybody that you can that's close to it to try to form some opinion. And it's, it's just clear to me that the tour wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for the defectors, if it wasn't for Phil. Uh, you know, it, uh, and that's it. And, and then given the circumstances of the intractable legal fees and trying to keep up with the purses, um, and, and trying to diminish the threat as much as they can. Some very smart guys were in that room. I mean, very smart. Smarter than Patrick Cantley, smarter than Phil Mickelson. Very smart guys were in that room. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at Jimmy Dunn, and, you know, you ever heard that saying, when someone shows you who they are, believe them? Believe them. Right? Okay. So I do believe that Jimmy Dunn showed the world who he was after 9-11, you know, when he did not have to, but he honored paying uh, insurance and college graduation, uh, you know, college tuition for, for all the kids uh, of all the people that died in that on that tragic day. I mean, that, you know, how many people in business do the right thing more than people think, but that's an example of somebody showing you who they are. And so, you know, when I talk to Jimmy on the phone, I have no doubt that, that Jimmy is trying to do the best thing he could do for the game of golf and that it was a untenable situation. Um, 
you know, I wish that the PGA Tour wasn't in that situation. I, I think that the derision being directed at, at Jay and Ed and Jimmy, and I think it, it should be more directed at the people who denigrated uh, the PGA Tour as they were defecting to live. That's what really set golf down this path. You know, we always say that, you know, golf's been lucky that it's had great superstars who've been caretakers of the game. And, and that's true, you know, it was true of Bobby Jones, it, it was true of Jack Nicklaus, it was true of Arnold Palmer. They were all, you know, Jack and Arnold for sure, Tom Watson, they were all given the opportunity to defect and start their own tours. They were all presented with those ideas in their era, but they turned them down because it wasn't great for golf and it was selfish for them. Greg Norman came along and he, that's all he's been trying to do his entire career. Let me get mine. Let me get paid. I'm worth more than the market says I am. And that's what set golf down this path. So, you know, when I look at how unlucky golf has been in the, in my view, the lack of character uh, of, you know, Phil and Norman as, as preeminent figures in the game of golf, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's set golf down this path and it's put the, the head of governing bodies in a pretty tough spot. But having said that again, I, I still think um, there's an opportunity for better economic choices that I think are available now to the tour. So if the deal doesn't go through, good clean money can come in and combat the problem of the Saudi wealth fund trying to buy all of sport, but in particular golf. How has the last year been for you personally? I mean, you've sort of made it sound like you can brush this stuff off, like the controversy and the criticism, but I mean, a job that used to involve golf controversies about, you know, right. rules, scandals and, and hoodies and whatever else is now geopolitical. It's much more personal. It's much more, uh, it's much more like politics and the rest of the world. How has that affected your life and, and the way your life intersects with your job and your enjoyment of that job? Yeah, I'd look forward to getting back to just talking about golf and golf swings. I mean, I, I love looking at golf swings and trying to connect dots, and I love that. I absolutely love it. I, I, I look forward to it as much as I used to look forward to getting up and hitting golf balls. Uh, you know, and I'm, I would rather not spend all day long looking at f videos of debates about Saudi Arabia. You know, I would. I would rather not be buying books uh, about geopolitical issues and geography and uh, you know, spending almost half my days combating, trying to figure out how to navigate the politics of, of what's going on in the world of golf. I'd much rather not be doing that. It's time consuming, uh, but it's, what else are you going to do? Because that's where golf's at, you know, and it's my job to talk about not just golf swings, but golf. And so that is, that's, that's the nature of the job now. That's what it requires. Uh, what's it been like? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's any more or less stressful than my job otherwise was. Uh, maybe slightly less enjoyable, but 
you know, there was always, there's always, I call it stress, it's not stress, it's, it's a, um, a sense of urgency to try to get your arms around what's going in golf and to say it in a different way than you said it yesterday. That's the toughest thing about your job probably is to write about the same thing you wrote about last week and say it in a different way this week sure. and then the next week. And that's the same thing with my job. Is like, how am I gonna talk about John Rahm this week? What can I say different about John Rahm at the, yeah. US, or at the Open Championship that I didn't say at the US Open? Well, luckily his game changes, it's things change in the game, the course changes, and so you can always try to, but to do that, it takes a lot of time. And that's fun for me. It's really fun for me. I really enjoy it. But the, the political stuff and the attacks, you know, it just comes with the job. Um, and, it, and in the social media world that we live in, it's, it's inevitable. I, I mean, if Mother Teresa were alive today, she'd be getting vilified uh, on social media. You know, you, you take the most honorable human being you've ever known, if they're on social media, they're getting vilified. If they're doing anything, they're getting vilified. And again, what most people don't realize is you don't even know who is on social media. Mm -hmm. You don't know those people. You don't know what their motivation is, even if they're real people or who they are. Unless it's somebody I know on social media, I pay scant regard to it. If it's somebody I know, if it's, if it's you or it's Riggs from Barstool or the No Laying Up guys or Justin Ray or you know, somebody I work with, and I look at, and they're criticizing something I say, I'm like, all right, well, this is an absolute, you know, justifiable, mm. you know, What about when it's Phil Mickelson? Well, look, I, I, I always consider the bias of where a criticism's coming from. So I'm not saying that I give, I think they're valid criticisms. I'm like, I'll try to read behind the bias of it and try to see, is it well-founded? Is it well-intended? Uh, was I wrong? And yeah, if you're wrong, you're like, yeah, actually they're right. They got it right. I'll change my opinion. They've presented evidence that contradicts mine. I'll absolutely change my opinion. Look, Phil is in an indefensible position morally. There's nothing Phil could say to me about Liv that would have any merit. What he's doing is morally indefensible. And he knows it. And people that are close to him know it. And he knows that. So, you know, what Phil is doing is, is trying to sell a lie. And nobody sounds more insincere or stupid when they're trying to sell a lie. And that's what he's trying to do. And that's what MBS is trying to do. And that's what Liv's trying to do. Uh, they're trying to sell a lie. And I'm not buying it. All right, guys. Dylan back for one final thought, which uh, isn't much of a thought at all, except to say thanks to Brandel Chambly for taking the time. Thanks to you guys for making it this long. If you want to see video of this, you can do so on golf.com. If you want to read uh, the text of what you just listened to, I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, but maybe you could send it to a friend that's also on golf.com. If you're just saying, when can we hear more Sean Zock on this podcast? I'm sick of you? Well, just wait a few days. Sean is live in Chicago at the BMW Championship as we speak. Uh, so we'll be coming to you uh, next Monday. See you then. Thanks for listening. Love you guys.